So I have been uh, working on uh, this question about how international is the International Court of Justice. And the reason I was uh, super interested in this question is that I was reading uh, the late Justice Christopher Weramantri's uh, Grotius lecture at the American Society of International Law a couple of years ago. And I came across this sentence uh, that uh, is up on the slide, and I hope you can all see the slide. Uh, and it really sort of uh, got me thinking uh, about uh, the subject of uh, what I'll be talking to you this afternoon, your time. Uh, and it's about the, the representation in cases before the International Court of Justice, you know, who are the lawyers who appear uh, for uh, developing countries, for, for what in this presentation I will call the non-OECD countries. Uh, so the outline of my presentation is, is <clears throat> I'll tell you what I did after I really got intrigued uh, after reading uh, Justice Weramantri's uh, Grotius Lecture. I had actually listened to this Grotius Lecture, uh, but um, at the time when I listened to him, when he gave the Grotius Lecture and the response, great response by Professor Nathaniel Bauman, this particular part of his lecture didn't stick in my mind until I read um, his lecture again. Uh, so uh, what I did uh, um, over several months with a very big group of students uh, is uh, to undertake an empirical study that uh, whose results I will be presenting today uh, and, um, and uh, then tell you what some of my takeaways are. Uh, I don't wanna make any strong conclusions yet uh, because this is, a project that is ongoing. I have tons of data, I have tons of tables. I'll not bore you with all of it, uh, except that uh, I, I will um, sort of say some of the things that are really intriguing me at the moment as I continue to, to develop that project. So <clears throat> Justice Weramantri's uh, gracious lecture uh, cited this study uh, published in the Michigan Journal of International Law in 2001. Uh, that had examined uh, the very question uh, that uh, sort of led me to my own empirical study uh, in the time frame 1948 to 98 uh, about who it was that represented non-Western countries. So I'm going to be using non-Western countries, developing countries, non-OECD countries, all sort of roughly uh, to mean the same thing and concluded that there was uh, what they called a Western monopoly of international legal practice at the International Court of Justice. And they attributed this lack of non-Western legal representation uh, for non-Western countries in the ICJ uh, to the lack of expertise in non-Western countries. A subsequent study by uh, Kumar and Rose, Kumar who had, uh, um, been uh, uh, had sort of been a, a clerk at the court uh, uh, came roughly to the same conclusions using uh, a different time frame, 99 to 2012. And uh, for them, their primary question was how the backgrounds of the individuals that appeared uh, before the court uh, seemed to influence the development of public international law by the court. Um, in um, in my own study, uh, I replicate a lot of uh, the data that uh, these two uh, prior studies uh, came up with. 
Um, but I also specifically sought to establish the names of the law firms that appeared most frequently uh, before the court. And I was very interested in whether there were some non-Western law firms, some non-OECD law firms uh, that appeared before the court. I was also very interested in naming the members of the most frequent uh, council uh, that appeared before the court. The prior studies had tried to do that, but not as systematically as I tried to do uh, in, in my own study. Um, and I also was very interested in measuring the extent to which um, when there were nationals of non-OECD countries in the legal teams representing non-OECD countries, uh, how much of the time before the court, uh, these uh, nationals of the non-OECD teams spent presenting the legal arguments uh, as opposed to merely providing the geographical background, the history, or some other non-legal questions, uh, often usually at the, the beginning of the oral hearings before the court. Um, so I was, I was very interested in sort of gathering as detailed information on this as, as possible. Uh, with regard to the national teams, I focused only on the agents, the counsel, the advocates, the legal experts, and the various combinations of these. So, you know, this doesn't include the secretaries, the witnesses, the administrative assistants. You know, if you've been to The Hague at an oral hearing, you know, there's a whole coterie of people that appear there, um, including ambassadors and, and, and uh, diplomatic uh, types uh, on behalf of their countries. <clears throat> so my period uh, was 1998 to 2019. Uh, and I looked at all the contentious cases that the court decided in that period. And uh, based on um, uh, sort of just the uh, bean counting, there were 55 applicants and 55 respondent countries. I counted the intervening countries, uh, eight of them separately. Uh, most of uh, what I'll be talking about uh, with you uh, relates to uh, the 55 applicants and 55 respondent countries, not the intervening countries. I have data for that, but um, uh, my data set is a, a little too large uh, for, for this uh, presentation to include every element uh, of the data that I, um, that I, <clears throat> that I have. So uh, after identifying uh, these cases, then I, uh, with my research assistants, uh, tried to figure out who the legal teams were representing each country. Uh, I mean, this is not data that is collected uh, systematically. So it required actually perusing the pages of um, the oral proceedings, which are published by the court. Um, the other major task uh, was to figure out the nationalities of uh, the legal teams on either side. Uh, I can tell you that uh, this is an ongoing exercise. You know, I've been uh, trying to complete this with um, uh, with as much accuracy as I can. Um, it's not easy because uh, uh, this kind of information, especially on nationalities, is not information that is disclosed publicly. It's mostly private information. 
so there are some instances in which inferences were made, but I can say with certainty that we were able to identify uh, where uh, the legal, uh, the individuals in the legal teams were located, whether they were located in a non-OECD country or in an OECD country. Um, so the exercise in terms of how the study was taken, like I said, is sort of uh, to look at the oral proceedings, uh, uh, sort of the point of departure, uh, and uh, essentially counting uh, the pages uh, uh, to establish uh, the share uh, of each uh, member of the legal team's contribution to the oral proceedings you know, how long each of these members of the legal team held the floor during the oral proceedings. Uh, the two previous studies emphasized the oral proceedings are a really important part of uh, the cases before the court because they often highlight the most significant points of controversy. Uh, and, and therefore they may be a good proxy for uh, the level of participation in terms of legal expertise uh, among the members of the court. Um, so in terms of then the next point about uh, trying to um, uh, determine the share of each uh, member of uh, a legal team either on the applicant side or the respondent side, how much time they held on the floor of the court, uh, I used 60% uh, as a benchmark uh, for trying to figure out uh, the sort of level of participation uh, by each member of, of a legal team. And each legal team, of course, as I have implied, uh, comprises largely of nationals, either of the applicant or of the respondent and non-nationals. Uh, and you, the, the reason that I used the 60% benchmark, I could have used the 50 plus 1% you know, to establish whether, for example, the non-nationals had the larger share or the lesser share in terms of how long they held uh, the floor of the court during the oral proceedings. It didn't make a difference whether it was 60% or 50 plus 1%. The MacArthur study used 60% and I sort of just stayed with the 60% because it didn't make a huge difference in terms of the results. Um, and, and so um, uh, I was also interested to see, of course, whether there were any uh, non-OECD countries that, that held the floor the entire time, uh, where their nationals held the floor the entire time. Uh, so that's how I've organized my, my sort of my, my results. Just to emphasize, uh, um, uh, again, this distinction that I'm drawing between OECD and non-OECD countries, uh, you know, this is really what I think is my proxy for Western versus non-Western. It's not an exact uh, sort of proxy, as we know, uh, sort of this category of the OECD uh, does have some countries that may be considered to be developing countries uh, or non-Western countries. But in any event, it's the proxy that I used, uh, and, and perhaps we can have a discussion as to whether this is a good proxy or not, or whether the results actually would change. You know, I think there's quite some random randomness in uh, 
the categories in any event, first world and third world. Uh, uh, as some of you may know, I think of the third world as an epistemic location and not necessarily a geographical location. But for these purposes, I had to have some proxy uh, for sort of making this distinction. And this is the, the one that I stayed with. Um, of the 55 applicant states in my data set, 49 were non-OECD countries. And of the 55 respondents, 29 were non-OECD countries, which means clearly that uh, non-OECD countries or developing countries are the major market uh, composing of the legal teams appearing in proceedings before the International Court of Justice. They are really sort of the place, if you're a lawyer seeking to represent one of these countries, you would be looking to, uh, because they're the ones that appear more frequently than the OECD countries before the International Court of Justice. Um, so uh, to present the results now in a little more detail, uh, in terms of proportional representation on the legal teams representing their country at the ICJ, non-OECD nationals were in the minority more often than they were in the majority. So across both the applicant and the respondent states, uh, non-OECD nationals were in the minority overall. For the applicants of the 49 non-OECD countries, 34 had less than 60% of their nationals uh, on their team. And for the respondents, uh, 29 of the non-OECD countries, 13 had less than 6% of their nationals on their legal team. Uh, some uh, standout countries uh, like uh, Peru and India had a uh, majority of their nationals on their, uh, on their, um, on their legal teams. Uh, so there are exceptions. Uh, which seems uh, sort of an important uh, point for me to, uh, in my ongoing work, uh, find out whether why it is that uh, India and Peru uh, have uh, stand out relative to the rest of the OECD countries. Um, and we can talk about that. And maybe some people might have some good ideas in terms of uh, why that might be the case. Um, in terms of oral presentation uh, before the court, the results uh, are very similar to uh, the results with regard to the composition of the legal teams. Non-OECD nationals performed underwhelmingly as this slide shows, uh, uh, especially my second bullet point, uh, the total number of, of cases where non-OECD nationals presented 75 to 100% of the case were only five or only 4% of my total data set. Um, so, um, the other point to note is that, uh, and I didn't include these statistics or the data here, uh, is that, uh, most of the non-OECD, uh, lawyers, uh, counsel agents, uh, were on their feet when presenting the history of the case or the geographical context of which was a boundary dispute. They were not on their feet when the legal questions, the most controversial legal questions between the parties were being uh, discussed. Um, so who is, this, who is it that was sort of presenting the, 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 the legal arguments? Um, 
is is going to be, of course, the next question. And just uh, you know, for context, um, um, there is, like I note in my third bullet point, there a massive gender imbalance. Only two hundred and thirty female lawyers, as opposed to eight hundred and nineteen male lawyers, appeared before the court uh, uh, in my data set. Um, um, and I, I'm still trying to break it down in terms of uh, of whether of the numbers in terms of uh, um, uh, the female lawyers who actually were on their feet uh, in the various uh, in the various cases. Only four nano ECD law firms uh, were given instructions by nano ECD states. So there's a question there regarding um, you know do these nano ECD countries. Uh, uh, um, figure that they might win their case, uh, you know, by appointing uh, an OECD law firm as opposed to a law firm in a non-OECD country. You know, there's a question of uh, the demand, you know, whether part of the explanation for this is on the demand side. Um, uh, that's a question to sort of think about. So who are, um, like I said, you know, who are this elite ICJ bar? Um, and here I just sort of I'm putting out the ICJ bar with those with only five cases. I, I have a list of all of them, including those with only one case, but these are the leading ones. And you can see at the very top is Alain Pelé who has 26 in my data set, 26 cases. Um, uh, and all the way down, um, uh, uh, these are all uh, names that, I'm, that we all know very well in our discipline. Uh, I don't think there are any surprises here, um, but it also confirms uh, the uh, studies uh, that I mentioned before uh, that uh, noted uh, the dominance of uh, UK, I mean, European-based uh, uh, academics or practitioners as opposed to those from uh, the United States, for example. Uh, clearly, um, in, in sort of this sort of uh, high frequency uh, legal counsel, uh, none from the uh, uh, non-OECD countries. Law firms, um, and I use law firms loosely because some of these don't define themselves as law firms in the UK. I think they define themselves in all sorts of ways. So, I, and I'm not entering into that debate. Perhaps you guys can give me better advice so I don't get into trouble by defining some of these as, as law firms. Uh, it's complicated. But again, you can see it's, uh, um, uh, it's the same usual suspects. Uh, there are no surprises here again. Um, it's uh, some of the leading global law firms that are appearing more frequently uh, than law firms uh, from elsewhere. Again, the United Kingdom dominates uh, the appearances uh, before the court. Um, and these are really huge numbers considering that uh, I imagine the, the, the competition to sort of uh, represent one of these countries in these cases is pretty intense. Um, but in any event, uh, the, uh, the data speaks for itself. Um, uh, I don't think there are uh, any particular surprises, uh, any particular surprises here. At least I, I wasn't very surprised when I saw a lot of these names. And I think that uh, a lot of these uh, law firms or whatever entities, let's call them that, 
uh, a lot of these entities, uh, their share of uh, cases in other fora in international law might be very similar, but I'm not dealing with other fora, uh, but I suspect that it's uh, very similar. Nano-ECD law firms. So there were, there, were, there were four, this is exciting for me, there were some four nano-ECD law firms, including one from the Congo um, uh, in, in, in uh, one of the Congo cases. There's one from Russia, one from Serbia and Montenegro, and one from Bahrain. But three of them, uh, um, three of them actually appeared uh, together with the major law firms. None of them was appearing uh, on, um, on, on their own as the lead law firm, sort of the one that had the instructions uh, to, to lead the, uh, the legal team appearing on behalf of a country. Um, so, um, the data in my view is instructive without more. Um, it confirms the continuity of this very exclusive ICJ bar. This is not even my point. This is the point in the literature, even the literature that doesn't have the data of the senior white uh, male from Western countries dominating practice at the International Court of Justice. Now, I, so I have questions, you know, a lot of the literature emphasizes uh, expertise and deep knowledge and experience and social capital and reputation. And when I started writing my write-up several months ago, I, um, I sort of developed a very long draft, but then I got very dissatisfied. I just couldn't figure out whether these were the explanations, the only explanations for the data. Uh, it seemed to me that these explanations were begging more questions than answering the questions that I have. Um, and so I began thinking about also the way in which these elite lawyers build and develop these elite reputations that enable them to be uh, these repeat players uh, and that these law firms to have so many cases before the court. And so the things I'll tell you that, you know, as I conclude, the things that I'm thinking about, and you know, we can open this for discussion because I don't have the answers yet, uh, but I'll tell you what I'm thinking. Uh, I think that it's really important to explore uh, the way that these elite lawyers and law firms occupy critical choke points in the, interna in, in the international legal ecosystem, let me call it that way. Uh, uh, this is in terms of uh, things like um, their leading academics, they're in the leading journals, they're in the International Law Commission, they're in the leading arbitral uh, bodies, they are ranked by all these ranking uh, bodies. Uh, uh, this is, you know, uh, some of them uh, we know, um, are occupying simultaneous important significant positions, for example, in the International Law Commission and deciding cases in international arbitration on the very questions for which they have responsibility in the International Law Commission. Some of them we know from you know, anecdotes uh, have articles out there on cases in which they are appearing either as counsel or on whatever side. So this is sort of looking at the international, entire international economic international uh, law ecosystem uh, and not sort of just thinking about the court. Um, so I think that is really important. So I'm trying to figure that out and it's really hard to figure out, but I think that there is something there. I think something 
more than simply uh, about deep knowledge and deep, deep expertise and deep experience. Um, um, so we have to unpack what that really means uh, in my view. Uh, but also, I think it's very important to think about uh, the sophisticated and strategic lobbying for clients, uh, especially for those that are in the big law firms with connections and resources. And so one of the things that I've started doing is that I've started conducting interviews, off-the-record interviews. Uh, so there are things I could say and there are things I couldn't say. Uh, but I think that for us to really develop a better understanding uh, the, of, 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 of this data, uh, I think one has to go to that level. Uh, I'm not sure that I'll be able to do that with any level of authority that I can publish anything, but I'm just intrigued um, that I want to continue pursuing this. So the last thing I wanna say is that, um, I have two more slides, um, uh, uh, but one is to say that I, I don't know how to say this, but, um, I'm also interested in figuring out on the demand side for the non-OECD countries, uh, the way in which these appointments happen. At least I know in the international arbitration context, uh, word on the street is that if, if an investor uh, designates uh, a particular lawyer in London uh, 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 to, be, to, to, to be appointed as their arbitrator, that the respondent country is likely to go to Paris or come back to London or to be in New York or to be in Washington DC uh, to match the, the council, the arbitrator that's been appointed on the other side. And I don't know whether this is what's happening in the ICJ. Um, maybe we can talk about that. Uh, and I, you know, so there are things here that I think need to be figured out and, and, and um, uh, they're really important. Now, with regard to that, there's one other thing that's really been uh, quite revealing is that all these leading lawyers have won national awards in the countries that they've represented. So they're these sort of uh, uh, prestigious awards given to non-nationals uh, by the executive branches of the various countries around the world. And I have started developing all these lists of these elite prizes, national recognition prizes that these leading lawyers have received, which suggests to me that they are deeply embedded and connected within those national contexts in which they represent. In one case, one of those, in one of the cases, one of the five cases, the case was nationally televised. The lawyer in question who represented this country was a celebrity in that country. Uh, so these are the types of things that I'm interested in figuring out. Um, and maybe this doesn't sound very academic, but this is what interests me. Um, you know, things that appear in the national, in, in, in like the New York Times is about Paul Reichler. Uh, uh, and this is, you know, uh, maybe the second article in just a couple of years about his, uh, you know, about his, uh, his practice, uh, you know, I think is instructive for some of the things that I'm trying to trace for which I think uh, there needs to be more research on. So thank you very much for your patience uh, and listening to my rumblings. Uh, and uh, I look forward to the conversation. Thank you very much.